The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. But let's get into God's Word together, shall we? Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 8, 27. Mark 8, 27. What I would encourage you to do this morning is actually uh, keep a bookmark here in uh, your Bible in Mark because we're going to uh, begin our, the second half of the, our study of Mark, our verse-by-verse study. So um, there's some bookmark things that you have there. If you don't already have one, uh, you can pick up one of these handy, like how to have a quality quiet time bookmarks out at our connection table. But I would say put that in here because we're going to go verse-by-verse through the rest of Mark. And so as you turn there to Mark 8, what, uh, what you should know actually is if you're new with us today is that way back in the spring and summer, doesn't that seem like a long time ago, um, we were journeying through verse by verse through the first eight chapters of Mark and then we took that break to kick off our ministry year with the Authentic series. But today we're back into Mark. Actually where we uh, just kind of drop into this morning is on the top of a mountain peak. We're at the mountain peak of the entire book. It's the pinnacle of the passage. Any mountain climbers in here? Anybody ever summited a mountain? You know, some, a few, maybe. You're like, yeah, I went up that hill outside of town. It's like 800 feet above sea level or something. No, but we are in the book. If you think of, uh, uh, of Mark uh, leading up to this point, he has repeatedly uh, forced us, as we've read, to ask the question, who is this man? If you remember uh, chapters one through eight, uh, Mark just very directly, very intentionally uh, laid out the life of Jesus. So we would ask this question, who, who is this man? And at every instance, in every story, in every uh, ministry and teaching of Jesus, we were left to answer that there's no one like this guy. There is no one on the face of this earth who has ever lived or will ever live that is like Jesus. He is unique. And not in the way that your Uncle Bob is unique, but in the way that only Christ as God and man is unique. And so here really as we stand upon the peak As we are in this passage and we take in the views all around, it's we see now with crystal clarity just who Jesus is. And so if you would, join me at the cusp. Would you join me as we take this last step and see the view? Turn now, if you haven't, to Mark 8, 27, and I want to read through the end of the chapter. Follow along in your copy, and I'll read it here for us. Mark 8, beginning in verse 27, says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, 
He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And this is God's word for God's people. And so as You've heard me read this as you've followed along from the top of the mountain. Let me ask this question. Who is Jesus? You can say it. I love responsive uh, feedback. Who is Jesus? He is the, the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And you know what's interesting about this passage? What's likely been a few years of tagging along with Jesus, of hearing him teach, of observing his miracles, it now finally sinks in for the disciples. John tells us in John 1.41 that uh, Andrew kind of got the picture when he first met Jesus. And then Andrew goes and he, uh, he tells his brother Peter, he says, hey, you gotta come with me. Look, I've found the Messiah. And other than that, really at the beginning of his life, it's not necessarily seen until now, after seeing uh, these years of who Jesus is, of being with him, they can now uh, confirm, they fully believe that this is Christ. This man is the Messiah. And so the rest of Mark really hinges upon our understanding this fact of just who Jesus is as the Christ. Really, everything from here on out, as, as we've been going up the mountain and seeing that Jesus is a man like none other, and now at the pinnacle, he is the Messiah. And the rest of Mark now will show just how that Messiah changes everything. And so at this juncture, before we can proceed, we must really be clear on who Jesus is and what that requires of us, because here's a reality of the Christian life, that gospel clarity is a must. Gospel clarity is a must. And so uh, as we get here, as we see with great crystal clarity across the, uh, the landscape from the top of the mountain here uh, in this passage, we know just who Jesus is and what that requires of us. To be unclear, there's just too much at stake in our lives if we are cloudy in our understanding and application of the gospel. There's too much at stake if we are cloudy in our understanding and application of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as we work our way now through these verses, let's be clear about a few things. Let's be clear about three things to be precise. And here's the first one. Let's be clear that Jesus alone is the Christ. Jesus alone has, is the Christ. You know, as we jump into our passage, as we get to verse 27, we're, 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 you know, we're parachuting into it this morning, but there's been a train of thought, there's been a, a succession of the stories, a purpose for which Peter, or rather Mark, has been writing uh, through Peter's, really, testimony about Jesus. And as has been the case, as we've seen a lot in the first eight chapters, as Jesus is on a journey again, right? 
seems like Jesus is always going somewhere, right? He's just always afoot, always walking around. He is always uh, on mission, preaching and uh, transforming lives wherever he goes. And so just to kind of recap, you know, he was around Judea, around Jerusalem, and then in Galilee for a long time. And then remember, he kind of had that Samaritan uh, push there in that region. Well, now uh, we're told that he is really on the north end of Israel. He's walking uh, to the villages of Caesarea uh, Philippi, um, one of the northernmost cities. Not the northernmost, but if you know anything about the geography of Israel, uh, this village and villages surrounding it were at the north tip. And it was named after two people, Philip uh, the Tetrarch, that's why it's called Caesarea Philippi, and then obviously Caesar Augustus. And so uh, he named it after himself, Philip the Tetrarch, uh, so it wouldn't be confused with the other Caesarea by the sea or Caesarea Maritime. Uh, this was a, a different one. It was uh, in ancient days before this called uh, Panias or Panias, however you pronounce it there, but he renamed it because it was very beautiful. It was a city at the foot of Mount Hermon, and there there was some springs and a grotto and really a center for uh, false worship and false teaching there, but these beautiful springs were the source, uh, one of the sources, the many sources actually, of, of the Jordan River. So just to kind of give you perspective as to where he is, this is where Jesus is. And as he's on his journey, what's he doing? What does it say? He is talking to his disciples, right? Jesus is like the master walk and talker, right? He loves to walk and talk. And I would just commend this to you. If you have conversations that you need to have with like your spouse or your kids or somebody important to you, do a walk and talk. It's just a great thing. You get a little bit of exercise. It, it uh, clears your mind. It, uh, you know, you just, it's a great thing to do, I, uh, I mentor a kid at, uh, at one of the schools here in town, a fifth grader, and just getting to know him. I was like, hey, man, you want to go for a walk and talk? Man, we walked for almost an hour, and he just was overflowing with information about his life. But Jesus is obviously the master walk and talker, and he's having a, a great conversation here. And he asks these two penetrating questions, doesn't he? First, he asks... This one, who do people say that I am, right? Who do people say that I am? What is he asking here? He's asking about what is the popular opinion about me? You know, if Barna or Gallup or Lifeway Research was around in those days, what would the research say about the popular opinion of who am I? right? Now they're not around, right? You know, we collect their data and then it could be a, you know, like one of those questions on family feud. Like, who do people say that Jesus is? And survey says John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And all of these answers, uh, you know, they sound spiritual, even kind of biblical, but ultimately they're wrong. Some thought that he was John the Baptist, who had, uh, was a great prophet who'd been beheaded and killed, and now he's back from the dead. Others, they knew Old Testament prophecy and they knew what Malachi said that Elijah would uh, come back, that Elijah would come. So maybe it's him or others are like, well, he says some really great things. He does some things. Maybe he's a, maybe he's a prophet. That's what popular opinion said. Close, but not quite. And so Jesus, what does he do? He follows up with an even more intrusive question now, doesn't he? But he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter very simply, clearly, and correctly answers, you are the Christ. 
the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited rescuer, the exclusive king of all creation. Very simple, very clear, and absolutely correct. You, Jesus, are the one we've been waiting for. Jesus alone is the exclusive rescuer of the world. He says he's the Christ, right? And that's maybe a, a you know, kind of a term that, you know, we use a lot. Like Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name, right? My name is Blair Cushman. But it's the term Christ is not just another name, but a title, it is a title, the Christ is really just the, the Greek uh, translation or the Greek version of the Hebrew version of Messiah. And the Messiah has these uh, connotations of, of a royalty, an anointed one. The, the, the kings of the Old Testament, the, the prophets, the, the priests of the Old Testament, but all of that here in this one long-awaited Savior. And so whereas some use the name Jesus Christ as a pejorative, to we who believe it is actually a term of submission, a confession of his authority over our life, that Jesus alone is king, the ruler. You know, there are sentiments like Jesus is my homeboy, he's my boyfriend, Jesus is my co-pilot, and those make, you know, really cool t-shirts and memes, but... They get close, but not entirely true. Even false religions like Islam, they would acknowledge that Jesus is a prophet. He's a good teacher, but not that Christ alone, or that Jesus alone, rather, is the Christ. And so while popular opinion is, can get close, it is, runs counter to the truth. And so Jesus here in verse 30, then, the fact that he issues this gag order in verse 30, doesn't mean that he is, doesn't want them to tell it, but that it wasn't yet time for them to go proclaim it because some things had yet to be done. And so let me ask this. How do you answer the question? Jesus alone is the Christ. How do you answer that question? Let us be clear without equivocation. Have you confessed Jesus as the Christ? Not just as someone that's like your get out of hell free card, not just somebody that issues you your fire insurance, but as he, is he the savior of your life? Is he the substitute that stood in your place? The lamb of God that was slain for your sin? If we were to survey popular opinion today, people would say, oh yeah, who's Jesus? They would say, oh yeah, he's the guy that died for sin, right? He's the guy that died on the cross. He was the good teacher, a nice guy. But what about you? Have you acknowledged and embraced and confessed that Jesus is your Messiah? This is the foundational confession upon which the church, upon which your life is built. It is the confession that Matthew 16 and Matthew's version of this says that the church is built on this confession that where Jesus is uh, proclaimed and confessed as king, there God is. 
there his spirit is at work, the church is built, and hell is held at bay. But beloved church, let us in our own lives, let us as a church be clear about this, that Jesus alone is the Christ. But let us be clear about this as well. Here's our second point in verse 31, that Easter was God's plan A for redemption. Let us be clear about some things this morning. Gospel clarity is a must. Jesus alone is the Christ, and Easter was God's plan A for redemption. See, immediately after Peter's confession, Jesus is like, you, you, you got it, you got it, right? You're right. Now I have to tell you about some things that are also about to go down. That's why he issues the gag order. He says, don't tell anybody yet, because he is now going to tell them, predict for them, to show them the way of what is about to happen, those events we traditionally refer to as Easter. A term really that's actually foreign to the scripture, but it captures Jesus' suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That weekend, those events, these East, this Easter events, Jesus must go through. Look at verse 31 with me here. He says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, another reference that Jesus uses about himself, an Old Testament reference about the Messiah, the coming king from uh, the prophet Daniel. He said he must, underline that in your Bible, he must walk this road if redemption and salvation was to be accomplished. This road of suffering, what he says here, he would suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, those who were the spiritual authorities over Israel, they would reject him and he would be killed and after three days he would rise again. And this was something that the Jews in those days missed. They expected the mighty, victorious Messiah, the king who would come and deliver them from Roman occupation. See, the people in in that time in Israel, they were under the rule. Roman authority had come and overtaken the land, and they were the controlling government over, uh, over Israel over the land, the promised land there. And so in those days, in their mind, what they saw in the Old Testament, when they thought of the Messiah, they thought of a mighty military champion, one who was undefeatable, one who was immortal. And now he's very plainly teaching them, it says in 32. He said this plainly. There was no mistaking it. He said, actually, you've rightly identified me as that Messiah, but I must first suffer, be rejected, killed, but I will rise again. There is no mistaking that this was God's plan A. This was God's plan A, the only way that we would be saved. And this was so shocking. Remember what, what their expectation was. They're so shocking that Peter, what does he do? He takes Jesus aside and he, to rebuke him, right? Like that's, he's actually rebuking him. Imagine the audacity, you know? He's like taking Jesus. Jesus, you are outside your mind. You can't die. You can't do this. What are you doing? Can, can you imagine the audacity? It's like a, a, a four-year-old telling you know, his, his or her pre-K teacher, like, I know you've told me that two plus two equals four, but nah. You know, we've counted the beans and you know, one, two, three, four. I know that it's plain, it's right here, but let me tell you, no, it, it just doesn't work that way. No, it's ridiculous. And Peter rebuking the Christ is ludicrous. And so what does Jesus do? He looks around, he looks at the disciples and back at Peter and then back at the disciples and he 
counter-rebukes him. And it's probably the harshest rebuke of a believer ever recorded in the scriptures. Get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that? Why does Jesus rebuke Peter like he actually rebukes Satan in the wilderness? Any thoughts? Is Peter actually like, you know, possessed here in this passage? Actually like have like, you know, change in voice or something? Why does he do it? It's because he knew that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the only way to defeat Satan. This was God's plan A for redemption. And so Peter, in voicing his uh, rebuke and of not seeing the way ahead, of setting his mind on the things of man, on the things of earth, he completely misses the point. And in so doing, he becomes really a tool of satanic thought that would turn our eyes away from the plan of God, the only way that we can be saved through Christ's sacrificial death on behalf of sinful people and his rise again to victory three days later. Beloved, don't miss this. Though this seems ludicrous to Peter, it seems probably even ludicrous to our minds, right? Like when you think about the songs that we sing, the, we celebrate death, we sing about blood, we, 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 you know, we talk about a guy coming back on the clouds, it seems crazy, to those who don't have their minds set on the things of God, it does seem ludicrous. And yet, the way of the suffering servant, the suffering Savior, the rejected Messiah was precisely the mind of God, his very plan A from the beginning and not some reaction to our sinful mess. It's not as though, you know, like sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and then things became, a, a, you know, just what they are today and God and, you know, and the Son and the Holy Spirit up there in their perfect trinity and are like, well, they sure made a mess of things. What are we going to do about it now? Well, here, let's devise this plan. No, God knew that there was no other way for us to be saved but through Christ. Left to our own doing, we would never be able to save ourselves, but Jesus became human flesh and died on our behalf. So what are we told to do? Set your mind on the things of God. Set your mind on the things of God. Let's be clear, Easter was God's plan A that we might be saved, and so as we live our lives, let us set our minds on the things of God. The Apostle Paul picks up this thinking in Colossians 3. I have it here on the screen. And he he says it this way. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, are you a believer today? Have you confessed Jesus as your Messiah? Then you've been raised with Christ. This is speaking of our union with Christ. He says, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here it is. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are earth, on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so in the same way that Jesus is teaching these things about who he is and 
what his plan is. So too, Paul picks this up as he's teaching this church at Colossae of, uh, of sorting out some, uh, some false doctrines about who Jesus is, some false teaching. Then the application is set your mind on the things of God. But how does our understanding of, of redemption, of salvation, of who Jesus is, how does it lead us to the application to set our minds on the things of God? Well, let me just say this. If God was as purposeful in carrying out his plan of redemption, you can bet he is also just as purposeful in planning out the details of your life. And so as we walk through this life, understanding the good news of Jesus Christ, we set our minds on the gospel. We set our minds on the goodness and sovereignty and the kindness of God. Because we can set our mind on other things, right? We can set our mind on our problems, right? We can set our mind on our problems and we get fixed in our circumstances here and, 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 and we're, 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 we can't see anything else. Our head is down. We're, all we can see is, is where we're stuck and we can't see out of it. And if our mind is set there, we will miss the purposes of God, just no, no matter how ludicrous they might seem. We may not be able to see the, how God could bring any good out of sickness, out of, he could bring any good out of poverty or strife or even death. The reality is, I don't always know what or why he's doing, but we can bank on that God is good. And if God has done the greater work of bringing the ultimate good of our salvation through the death of the only innocent man in this world, you can be sure that he can bring good in your circumstances. Set your mind on the gospel on the things of good, not on your problems. We also can set our mind on our prosperity, right? On getting ahead. We can set our minds on, on our career, on building up our reputation, of building our body. And as we set our minds on prosperity, as we are single-minded in building up those things, it is really akin to building the Tower of Babel that will one day crumble and we can miss the eternal potential that God gives us through our work, through our reputation, through our physical bodies, through our giftedness. But we set our minds on God, on the things of God, on biblical truth. But you know, this last thing, Jesus, he turns his lesson then as he's teaching them, as he's rebuking Peter, he gives one final point of truth that we must be clear on. Let's be clear. Losing your life is the only way to win. Losing your life is the only way to win. You know, as we stand on this peak of Mark's mountain, we have to take this in. We have to be clear that Jesus alone is the Christ, that Easter is God's plan A for our salvation, but this point is also very important for every Christ follower. So important that look at verse 34, he calls the crowd to him. He's talking to his disciples before, he's rebuking, he brings in the disciples, but now he's like, everybody who is within earshot, please hear what I have to say. And he says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would consider themselves a Christian, if anyone would consider themselves a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, here is the winning strategy. You want to win at life, 
And you must do these things. You know, life coaches are pretty popular these days, right? You want to coach, like, I want to win in my life. I need help making decisions. Well, Jesus very simply, clearly, and correctly lays out the only way to win in your life. Deny yourself and die with Christ. Deny yourself and die with Christ. Or as Paul said, he says, you are hidden with Christ in God. Lose your life now and you will win forever. Lose your life now and you will win forever. Just as Christ laid down his life to win us, so too the call for us is to lay down our selfish ambitions and our trivial pursuits. Listen, if we are attacking our physical gains and financial gains, if we are attacking career goals and fitness goals with greater tenacity than our spiritual gains and goals, then you will lose. You will lose, your body will break down, your bank account will empty, your career will one day come to an end, but your soul is eternal. Growing with Christ is something that will never end. You know, there's a great example of a man who had the whole world, so to speak. Have you ever heard of the man Charlemagne? Not like the contemporary rapper, but the ruler who lived uh, you know, just over a thousand years ago. See, there's a painting of him. It's a pretty handsome fellow, right? Even shows, even in the painting, that he owned the whole world. This was the depiction of him. You can do some research on him. Charles, he was known as Charlemagne, but also Charles the Great or Charles the First, and he was king of the Franks. He's also king of the Franks and Lombards, and eventually became the Holy Roman Emperor. He ruled a, a massive uh, swath of land. He was uh, insanely wealthy, and he's among the best-known and most influential figures of the early Middle Ages, really for his military success, but also uh, for his reforms all throughout Europe uh, within education and also within the church. And his policies that he made as he was ruler laid the foundation for development of later European nations. He ruled uh, initially with his brother, and then his brother died, and he became the sole ruler. He was more powerful uh, than even the popes of that day. And he reigned for 46 years, and he died then in 814 A.D. And there's an interesting story, actually, that surrounds his burial. You familiar with this? You may have even heard it. There's an interesting story. Legend has it that he asked to be uh, entombed sitting upright on his throne. And he asked as he was sitting there that his crown be placed on his head, his scepter in his hand, his royal cape upon his shoulders, and an open book be placed in his lap. That was when he died in 814 AD. But nearly 200 years later, the emperor Othello determined to see if that was actually the case. And so he allegedly sent a team of men to open the tomb and make a report. Now that's like thinking of 200 years later and going and opening a tomb. I, I mean, maybe, maybe you're more adventurous than me, but that just sounds like a gruesome request. But they found the body just as Charlemagne had requested, interestingly enough. Only now, nearly two centuries later, the scene was gruesome. The crown was tilted, the mantle moth-eaten, the body disfigured. But guess what was open upon the skeletal thighs of this man, Charlemagne? 
the book he requested? A Bible. Where his finger pointed? The verse in our text today. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Charlemagne was a man beautiful, powerful. He had gained much of the world in his death, his teaching, even a thousand years later, rings loud. It is unlikely that any of us in here will be as wealthy and powerful as Charlemagne. Maybe. I hope so. Yet inside of us, something still clamors with the desire to be liked, to be popular, to be successful, to be powerful. And it's a deceptive pull that if we are unaware, we can drift towards this type of thinking. We can even start with gospel intentions in our work. We can even start with gospel aspirations in our career. We can even start with good motives for wanting a good reputation, to be well known. But if we leave this unchecked, we can find ourselves spiraling into being even ashamed of Jesus, embarrassed by his words, embarrassed by our biblical obedience, by the call of Christ to live distinctly, to lose our lives. And it is so much easier just to go with the flow at work, to mimic our friends in the midst of what he calls an adulterous and sinful generation. Imagine what he would call our day. But the call of Christ, church, is and always has been to live distinctly, to live a holy life. As a matter of fact, the way to live is to die. It is particularly to die with Christ. And so what does it mean to die with Christ? What is this call here to lose our life for Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake? Well, it means to die to sin. To die with Christ means to die to sin. It means to, like Romans 6 says, to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. It means that our life, we don't do what we once did. Strongholds of sins, struggles we once have, we now gain victory. We say no, that what was maybe true of our former life, the things that we did, the, uh, the aspirations that we had and the motivations that were sinful to get there, we just don't do anymore. To die with Christ means to die to self. It means that we are eager to put the Lord first. It is, means that we are eager to have great commission purposes. It means that we put others before ourselves. where uh, as a believer that sacrifice is the, nor- the joyful norm of our life. Where we are willing to lay it down in our marriage, in our parenting, in our work, in our school, for our friends. We die to self and we also die to our success. To die with Christ means that we die to success, what the world defines 
that our bank account has to be a certain place at a certain time, that, our, uh, that we must be somewhere in the corporate ladder by uh, certain periods in our life, that we should have kids, that we should be driving these vehicles, that it should, we, the list goes on and on. But we die to worldly definitions of success, and rather we seek to grow in godliness. Uh, we are taking steps in our understanding of theology and, and our understanding of the Bible even more so than we are gaining understanding of our hobbies and, uh, and the things that we like to do for fun and recreation. That our pursuit of understanding who God is is a noble, successful pursuit. That we are just as eager to grow in responsibility and great commission responsibilities and our responsibilities at church as we are as we are at work in the clubs that we're a part of. But beloved, the call here, the way to win is to die with Christ. And you will win. And let me just tell you something. This changes everything. It is a sobering call. We read these words and, and we're left to think uh, deeply about our life. We're left to uh, ponder the motivations of our heart. We're, we're left to reorient the way that we think and how we make decisions. But beloved, this is how we win. The lowly way is the way to win. It's the way of the lamb, the meek and mild and humble win and not the way of the dragon. And this changes everything, which is precisely what Jesus does, does he not? Jesus changes everything, and it's this strategy here, why I said we're on the mountaintop, because it is this strategy, it is these truths that influence the rest of Mark. As Jesus is gonna go on in coming chapters here and begin to teach us on things like love and marriage and sin and taxes and all of the things that are about to come, as he teaches it is influenced by this winning strategy. And so we must this morning, we must see clearly these truths if we are to make our way down the mountain, letting the word of God light our path. It is these truths that we cannot in our lives and as a church back down from, soften or neglect. Otherwise, we will lose. We will lose in our lives. We will lose as a church. Redemption will lose if Christ becomes cloudy if the gospel is glossed over, if authenticity is just an afterthought. But let us together, let us as a church, as a people united together, champion Jesus as the Christ, as the gospel, as the solution, together, together, losing our lives, that we might win to the glory of the Father. That's the call this morning. Are we clear? I pray we are. Let's pray now together. God in heaven, we love you and we love your word. God, these are truths that are sweet to us. They're truths that are uh, uh, sweet to we who are your children, and yet they are also sobering truths, God. They are sobering truths as we examine the manner of our life today. God, but we do, we want to win. We want to win your way. We see, Christ, that you have won on our behalf. 
God, we love these truths, and I pray that you would help us in our own life to love them more, and that we as a church, God, that you would make redemption a church, even as we uh, bring our worship here to a close, as you uh, expand our influence, as you give us more responsibility with the building, that we would never back down, we would never soften from preaching Christ as the exalted one. It's the gospel as our greatest hope and solution. Lord, so even now, as you, by your spirit, move among us, as we worship you in thought and word and deed, would you, by your spirit, be uh, at work that we might answer this question, that our minds might be set on Christ? God, that you might, if, you're, if, we're, if we're employing a losing strategy, trying to get ahead in our own ways, God, that you convict us and point us in the right direction. Thank you for taking us to a passage like this. Thank you, God, for recording uh, the winning strategy for us. We might be clear and plain just what that is. Lord, so we worship you now. We lift our voice to sing, Oh, you, my strength. We pray these things now in Christ's name. God's people said, Amen.